But I have a question. Have you ever found yourself in a situation where uh, circumstances were completely out of your control and it was going to take something miraculous uh, to maybe get you through it? You ever been in a situation like that where there is, uh, it's like, it's kind of terrifying actually. I I remember a moment uh, like this for me when I was in eighth grade. So my brother and I, when I was in eighth grade, he was uh, a junior in high school. My brother Mark um, he, he asked me, he had already been doing this for a year, but he asked me to join him in hosting a radio show. And so what we would do is we would get up Sunday morning, uh, really early before church, and we would drive 40 miles to Yuma, Colorado. And we would host this radio show called Let's Pray About It, where people would call in with prayer requests and we would play uh, the not the normal Sunday morning Christian music that you hear because we were teenagers. And, and so uh, we, we had this wonderful, fun ministry going on, uh, and we would drive there, and then we'd come back and, and go to church on those mornings. But this one morning, uh, it was February. It was kind of cold out. It had just been a nice, light dusting of snow uh, out there over the plains of uh, eastern Colorado. And I, I love, uh, <laughs> I love getting up in the morning and, and getting ready to go because one of my favorite things uh, was going on. I got up and, and I had bought an energy drink the night before. So I have my energy drink and, and I had also bought myself a six pack of those little chocolate gem donuts. So I'm set. I'm ready for anything. We jump in our family's 94 Suburban, a tank of a vehicle. We crank up the music and before the sun is up, we're heading down the road. We are, are just loving it, having a great time, connecting as brothers, and singing songs, and we, we come around a corner about 20 miles into our drive, and my, the sun has just started to come up. My brother is, is coming around this corner, and he starts to accelerate as he's coming out of the corner, and, and some of you know, you've experienced this when you're on a slick road, and you start to accelerate while you're still turning, what can happen? Um, all of a sudden, the Suburbans just started whipping around in circles on the road. Now, we had been going about 60 miles an hour, so we're really whipping around this corner. Now, my brother's freaking out because he is holding onto the steering wheel and doing whatever he can to try to stop this from happening, but it is out of his control. And he's going, oh my gosh, oh my gosh, oh my gosh, freaking out. Now, at this moment, what he doesn't know is right before we started spinning, I had popped one of those donuts into my mouth. And as we started spinning, I gasped, and it sucked itself right down into my throat. Luckily, it was on its side, so I'm breathing through the little hole in the middle. <laughs> Everything's tasting like chocolate. It was, it was kind of nice, actually, in the midst of the chaos. But As we're going around, my brother's thinking we're going to die in some fiery explosive crash. I'm thinking I'm going to suffocate on a donut. My head keeps hitting the window every time we whip around. Finally, after what felt like eternity, and actually was only three spins, (laughs) we ended up in the ditch about a foot and a half from a telephone pole. My brother couldn't even open his door because it was that close. And he's still holding on to the steering wheels. We're just stopped there. And he's like, oh my gosh, oh my gosh. Are, are you okay? And I'm like, huh, I swallowed a donut. Because <laughs> right when we hit the ditch, that donut dislodged and just dropped into my stomach. He calls my dad. He's like, Dad, this is what happened. I think the car is okay. I think we're, we're all right. And I'm in the background going, Dad, I swallowed a donut. We get on the radio, and my brother's telling the story. He's very dramatic in how he's explaining it out. And he goes, Ben, what did you feel when that was going on? And I'm like, I swallowed a donut. Like, I, 
I know my story sounds ridiculous and kind of maybe pathetic to some of you, but it's eighth grade me. It was a big deal. We were in a desperate state. Now that word desperate, this is, there's something about that word that doesn't sit well with us. I don't know if it's the idea of things being out of our control or maybe it's the fact that it's going to take somebody else or something else to help us through it or maybe it's just how much it points out our weakness in a specific situation. But whatever it is, something about being desperate is just, it just bothers us. We're uncomfortable with it. And this fear of or rebellion against desperation has, in our current culture, it's caused a sickness to seep into the pews of many a church, including our own. Now, it's a sickness that causes our focus to shift off of God and our eyes start to drift to one another and suddenly outward appearance becomes the most important thing in our lives. Now, some of you may be thinking, this guy doesn't know me. I'm not a material girl. I'm not focused just on the outside things. And I I want you to understand, I'm not talking about the material I'm talking about the emotional and spiritual that we put out. You see, I'm not looking at the clothes and the makeup and the money chasing and the next best thing idolatry that thrives in our culture. What I'm looking at is something different. I see those things as distant symptoms of the true sickness that has plagued us in the church. This disease of our church is shown most in our lack of or our fighting against desperation. Now, this is a disease that we're familiar with. A sickness that is common and we're well acquainted with it. It's called pride. Now some of you right now are finishing my sermon in your mind. Okay? And, and I'll just tell you, it's because you've heard sermons about pride over and over and over again. I have too. And yet God put this on my heart because there's something about pride that causes us to hear about pride and not do anything about pride. You know? And so maybe God is trying to say, we've got to keep doing it. Maybe it's just for me, but that's Okay? If this is what he's called me to share and it's just for me, you can tune me out. That's all right. But I want you to to really be willing to hear today what God has to say about pride. And we're going to look together. Jesus tells a parable that shows the sickness of pride. And I want to study this together uh, because it may bring to light some areas that you didn't know that pride was affecting and infecting with this sickness. So if you have your Bibles with you, if you can open up to Luke chapter 18, verses 10 through 13. The scripture will also be up on the screen, or you can follow along. If you have the Bible app, you can go to the More tab and hit Events, and all the scriptures for today's sermon are right there in there that you can follow along with. But we're in Luke chapter 18, verses 10 through 13. This is a very familiar passage to many of you. This is the parable where Jesus talks about the Pharisee and the tax collector. Verse 10, he says, two men went to the temple to pray. One was a Pharisee and the other was a despised tax collector. The Pharisee stood by himself and prayed this prayer. I thank you, God, that I am not a sinner like everyone else, for I don't cheat, I don't sin, I don't commit adultery. I'm certainly not like that tax collector. I fast twice a week and I give you a tenth of my income. But the tax collector stood at a distance And dared not even lift his eyes to heaven as he prayed. Instead, he beat his chest in sorrow, saying, Oh God, be merciful to me, for I am a sinner. Now, again, this is a really familiar parable to many of you. Uh, And you most likely have an idea where I'm going with this. But I think it's important for us to look here anyways, because uh, if we know this, apparently we've forgotten it. Because I think if we really took this to heart, our church would look quite differently differently than it does right now. 
But this passage in Luke gives us a picture into the heart of a man who is striving to justify himself based upon his actions. He's justifying himself before God based upon what he has done in comparison to others, specifically the tax collector that's in the darkness of the back of the room. We read this and we begin to immediately despise the Pharisee, don't we? We immediately go, this guy is a jerk. This guy is rude. He just roasts the tax collector, doesn't even give him a chance I don't know if he needs to sit on YouTube for a while watching videos about don't judge a book by its cover or something like that. I don't know. But this guy is super rude, isn't he? He's just awful. See, we immediately villainize the, te- the, uh, the Pharisee based upon what we see here. But when we read the passage like that, we actually miss something really important about the Pharisee. We miss something very important. And so I want to go back through it. I want to help you understand what I'm seeing here. We're going to look at this guy's resume that's laid out in this passage, describing him and what he is like. First thing we see, he doesn't cheat. So he's an honest guy. He doesn't sin. So he's a guy who's striving hard to do right. He doesn't commit adultery. Okay, so he's faithful. He's trustworthy. He fasts twice a week. Man, he's devoted to his faith. He tithes a tenth of his income. This guy is giving his money back to God. And here we see him praying. So now he's also giving of his time and spending time with God. So let me sum that up for you, what we see here. We see an honest, faithful man who you can trust to do the right thing. He's devoted and not afraid to give of himself to God in time and money. That sounds more like an elder than a jerk, doesn't it? Sounds like a really good description of someone living the Christian life that we're called to live, doesn't it? Because it is a good description. You see, here's the thing. If we see the full picture, we begin to see the model that most of us strive for as church-going Christians. We push for these goals because that is what a Christian is supposed to be. Honest, faithful, trustworthy, devoted, self-sacrificing. These are all good things to see in the life of a Christian. You see, the Pharisee, by our current cultural church standards would be the guy we'd all want to be like. And unless you heard his prayer, you'd have no idea just how sick his heart was underneath it all. It's a heart so filled with pride that he had forgotten the reason behind all of his striving. He'd forgotten the reason behind all of what he was doing. The church today, sadly, is made up of many Pharisees like this. We look good. We look super Christian But we've forgotten the reason why we look that way. We've forgotten the reason why we're striving that way. And how do I know this? Well, it's it's because I stand back and I watch. Today, I had a privilege, and and it's hard. I grew up uh, sitting in the front row at church. We always sat in the front row, which if you know my dad, that's kind of a weird thing because he's a really big, tall guy and he blocks a lot of people's views, but he liked to be in the front row. And I grew up loving that because when I'm in the back or in the middle, I get really distracted because I like to see people or someone moves and I want to see what's going on. And I'm like, okay. And, and I find that it's harder for me uh, to focus in on what's going on sometimes when I'm in the back row. But today I sat in the back for a reason. And I had the privilege of, of standing there and watching as, as we as a body spent time in worship, in praise to God. And here's what I saw. I saw many people holding back. Many people disconnected or discontent, fearful of others, even casting some judgmental glances at those that maybe were raising a hand in worship. Now, 
some of you are saying, well, just because I don't raise my hands doesn't mean I'm not worshiping. And I agree with you 100%. You are absolutely correct on that. But here's something you need to know. Just because I agree with you on that doesn't mean you were worshiping either. We need to slow down and not just get defensive, but start to realize something. I just spent a week with over 400 students, high school students, who wanted to worship God. Did you, did you hear that word? They wanted to worship God. At the end of that video that, that I shared here, you got to hear them. They were up in the mountains of Colorado, which yes, it's a beautiful setting, but they were exhausted. <laughs> that was after they'd been running around for hours, after an entire week of really being put through the ringer. They were drinking from the fire hose <laughs> and, and had all this stuff going on. And yet, one person with a guitar and a cajon, they start playing and, and they couldn't even use their mics and sing because it didn't matter because the students just took over. They wanted to glorify God and see him glorified in their praise. Now, I, I understand teens are bold, they're energetic, they're crazy, they're wild. But I could close my eyes in that room no matter what setting we were in. We, we got the privilege of worshiping in the gym at Columbine High School, in the park right outside of it. We got to worship at uh, Colorado Christian University in their main chapel and gym that they have there. We got to worship up in the mountains. And no matter what the setting was, no matter what the song choices were, no matter what the volume was or the talent of the band was, it didn't matter by the end of the week because all that mattered was that God was glorified. And in the light of his glory, all those things just faded out. They were meaningless because these students wanted to worship God. At some point, if you ever want to experience something like that, uh, come with me to something. <laughs> come with me and, and see because you, you'll realize it is incredible to be in a moment where you hear, we're going to sing a song that maybe you know, and you're about to start singing, but then the students sing and it literally takes your breath away as you go, whoa, we're not just singing anymore. Something incredible is going on and the sad thing is it's powerfully different than what I tend to hear in church on a regular basis. Powerfully different. And I promise you, it had nothing to do with the setting and song choices. Every single one of our students coming home said one thing. They said, man, we have to bring worship home. My goodness, we have to change our view of worship. Every single one of them said, I view worship totally different now. And it wasn't because of the craziness. It was because they realized, many of them for the first time, that God deserves their praise. And I love that. How do I know, though, that we as a church are infected with this disease of pride? Well, it's because I see it in myself. I sometimes battle worry on a second-to-second basis what people are thinking of me when I'm singing or teaching or preaching or praying or whatever it is. I, I battle this. I, I want to raise my hands and worship to God, but I'm afraid I might distract someone. Actually, if I'm honest, I'm more afraid of what they're going to think of me, right? I maybe want to stay after service and get on my knees before God in prayer, but what if someone sees that and thinks, oh, he's, he's got some hidden sin that he's battling? That's too risky, right? I can't do that. I want to go more uh, than just the greeting time handshake with the family I've been sitting by for two years. I want to connect with them more, but here's the problem. If I go now, they're going to think I'm weird or rude because I haven't connected with them, and they haven't connected with me either. So, you see, this list, it goes on and on, and, and for many of us, it really does. 
We have tons of things on this list, and pride is infecting and affecting every part of the church. But the most damaging, the worst part of it is this. It's, It's the part that affects all the rest. We are no longer desperate. We're no longer desperate, but instead we are satisfied with our self-made righteousness. We don't need God. Our righteous living, our acts of penance have become enough for us. Uh, Instead of not just needing God, we actually don't even want God. You see, the modern church, we see this in its design. It's not designed as as a, a place and a desire for God's glory, but much more out of as a shrine or a temple of our glory. We we program and practice and prepare the highest quality entertainment to draw people in. And then we infuse just enough of the right elements to give people the cathartic emotional release that they have come to associate with God, even though that release rarely has anything to do with God. You see, it's, it's this awful thing. We, we don't need God. We don't want God. We sound just like the Pharisee in the parable, but our prayer is a little more modern. Let me, let me read to you what our prayer sounds like today. God, thank you for the fact that I'm awesome enough to handle this Christianity thing. Thank you, God, that I show up to church, that I volunteer in the children's ministry. God, thank you so much that I support a Compassion International kid. God, thank you that I get to lead a life group. And God, thank you that I don't cuss. Thank you, God, that I give $500 a month to church and charities. And God, thank you that my Bible app streak is over a year long. God, most of all, thank you for getting me into a church that doesn't have a bunch of tattoo-riddled, recovering drug addicts and drunks because I would hate for the rough edges to rub off on those of us that are doing really good. You see, we read that and we go, oh, that's horrible. And yet, if you actually go back through the list and pick out a lot of the pieces, they're really good things. They're great things. They're things that we should see within the church, but the problem is the heart behind it shows through, and it's ugly. And yet, it's what many of us live like. It's what many of us feel sitting in church. It's, what, it's why we come. This is what we believe. This is our faith. It's ugly. It's ugly and it's time for us to get honest about that. Now some of you are maybe feeling like a punching bag. And some of you have already decided you're going to make me feel like one after the service. But before you do, before you get too upset, I want to ask you a question. Aren't you tired of it? Aren't you tired of the monotony that we call Christian living? Don't you feel like that you get tired of coming to church, singing, praying, listening, leaving, waiting six days, and then rinsing and repeating as needed, right? Don't you get tired of that? Don't you feel like there's got to be more to it than this you're saved, now be good mentality that we've bought into? I'm just going to be honest. I get super tired of it. I get tired of reading verses like John 10.10 and going, okay, Jesus has come to give us life and life to the full. And then I look at my life. I look at my faith, I look at my religion, and I go, man, something is missing. That does not describe my life at all. And I'm going to be honest with you. There are times I absolutely despise David from the Bible. I just despise him because no matter what's going on in his life, he has this vibrant relationship with God. It's, I read through his Psalms and it's like taking my faith and putting it in front of a fat mirror that accentuates the love handles of disbelief that I deal with, right? It's ugly, it's hard, it's painful. And yet it doesn't have to be, I found out. If I'm willing to look and see the medicine that's there and take the medicine for the sickness that has plagued me. And so I've given you the warning here, but we're going to look into one of David's Psalms together. We're going to look at Psalm 63, 
verses 1 through 8. Now, if you know uh, Psalm 63, you maybe know this, that this is believed to have been written while David was running from his son Absalom, who was trying to kill him to take his throne. Okay, so put it into that context. I'm going to read this to you, and I want you to hear David's heart. He says, Oh God, you are my God. I earnestly search for you. My soul thirsts for you. My whole body longs for you in this parched and weary land where there is no water. I have seen you in your sanctuary and gazed upon your power and glory. Your unfailing love is better than life itself. How I praise you. I will praise you as long as I live. Lifting up my hands to you in prayer, you satisfy me like more than the richest feast. I will praise you with songs of joy. I will I lie awake thinking of you, meditating on you through the night because you are my helper. I sing for joy in the shadow of your wings. I cling to you. Your strong right hand holds me securely. Did you hear that? This guy is being hunted by his own son and he writes to the God who has allowed all of that suffering and it sounds like a poem to the love of his life. That's not right. From what I see, David should be doubting and angry and giving up on God, except David has come to realize something that is vital to his faith. Even though he was king, even though he had defeated Goliath, even though he had outlasted all of Saul's attempts to kill him, even though he had the love of the people, David still needed God. He knew he needed God. He was an accomplished, respected, feared, loved king, but he was something far greater than that. David was humble. He was humble. Humble enough to recognize when pride was rising up in him and to accept when others pointed it out in him and correct it. The result of that humility, David's described as a man after God's own heart. He walked in a vibrant, close, flourishing, desperate relationship with God. Now, we know David wasn't perfect. We see his life displayed out for us in a way that we would be terrified to know that our life was being written down like that. To have all of that exposed. So we get to see that David is super flawed in a lot of ways. But here we see that he regularly, bat- he regularly battled his pride. And in this time of desperation where it would take a miraculous thing to get him through, he looked no different than in his times of joy and peace. He praised God the same. He came to God and saw God in the same way. His desperation for God was not based on his circumstances, but based on his spiritual state. See, there's a big difference there. And and the question is, what about for us? Let's think about it in our context. Are, Are we desperate for God? What does that desperation look like? Well, for David, it was this longing in mind, body, and soul. He would literally lie awake at night meditating and excited about God's law. Now, I want to know from you, have you ever read Deuteronomy? Okay, some of you read Deuteronomy to fall asleep. When David reads it, he can't go to sleep because he's so excited about it. It doesn't make sense, except David didn't just read Deuteronomy and go, oh, this is the law. David read it and said, These are the words of the God of the universe who has relentlessly pursued me, who loves me even though I fail, who desperately chases after me and I desperately want to know him. And he would lie awake at night excited about God's word, excited about the things that would put us to sleep because he had the perspective that we are supposed to have. And he was desperate to be with the God who was desperate to be with him. 
What does this desperation look like? It looks like one of our students calling me on Thursday night. It was late. I don't like getting calls late from students because I'm afraid of what it's about. I answer the phone and his voice is kind of trembling a little bit and I'm going, okay, what happened? What's gone on? And he says, Ben, I, uh, I know I'm supposed to share the gospel with this person. They just shared what's going on in their life and I know I'm supposed to share the gospel with them. But he called me because he wanted to be prayed for. He wanted encouragement. He wanted to have this all brought before God first. He wanted to see God move desperately, not him move desperately. He wanted to make sure that he was doing this in a God-honoring way and he wanted somebody to pray for him that he would have the boldness to do this and to step into what God had called him to. That desperation looks like the hundreds of people that I was just with at Lead the Cause. We got the opportunity to hear something written by the, uh, the founder of Dare to Share Ministries. He wrote a thing called A Letter from Heaven. It's a letter written from the perspective of a friend who is standing in heaven writing to the person who led him to Christ. And what was amazing is as they go through this letter and it describes just as scripture does these beautiful things of what heaven will be like. These hundreds of people hearing this are just weeping with desperation that they would get to see that and moreover desperation that their friends and family would know that they can have that for eternity as well. And they're desperately going, God, do something. God, move. God, we need you. Because they want, they want people to know that they can have that because of what Jesus has done. That's what this desperation looked like. What, what does it look like? It looks like a tax collector, a sinner, knelt in the darkness of the back of the sanctuary, begging God for forgiveness. You see, that's the start of true desperation for God. Is when we realize our sinful state and we desperately come running to him to find mercy and forgiveness and help. Now the amazing thing about our desperation is it doesn't stay there. Our desperation starts there, but actually ends up looking a whole lot more like the Pharisee in this parable with one big difference. I'm going to read back to you this description of the Pharisee, but I'm going to add one thing in there to show you the difference that, that is supposed to be in someone who is desperately chasing after God. He's an honest, faithful man who you can trust to do the right thing. He's devoted and not afraid to give of himself to God in time and money. He's kneeling in the back of the sanctuary with his arm around the sinful tax collector who he brought to the temple that day to show him a God who desperately wants to be with him. You see the difference there? Here's, here's the thing. This Pharisee, he knows that what he's doing is good stuff, but he has not forgotten that he's one beggar showing another beggar where the bread's at. That he desperately needs God. And that this tax collector desperately needs God. And so he is bringing him in. That's what desperation for God looks like. Acted out, lived out. It's not just about my good things. It's about what the purpose is behind all of them. Last month I was sitting at Maranatha Bible Camp with a group of 500 middle school schoolers. If you want to... Uh, ever smell smells that you never want to smell. It's a new Dr. Seuss book that we're going to write about middle school camp. But you should come join me sometime for that. But sitting in this room with 500 of them, quite a crowd, 10 feet in front of me, there's a student 
uh, wearing a shirt from a basketball team uh, that he had been on. And on the back, there's this saying on the shirt. Now, I'm trying to focus on what's being done up on the platform there, but I cannot get this saying out of my mind. I'm going, what, what is so important about this? Now, the saying was this, okay? It, it says, practice like you've never won and play like you've never lost. Now, I like this. I, I couldn't help but think about this statement and go, this is, for, for a basketball team, that's a great focus on it constantly improving and having confidence in their play. It's a great focus, but the pastor in me immediately starts running this quote through the sermon illustrationator that's built in, okay? And I, I start going through with this thing, and I'm thinking, okay, let's look at the life that we as Christians often live versus the life that Christ has called us to live in. What needs to happen to make those one and the same? If I were putting together a Christian living team, what would be on the back of our shirts? And this is what came to my mind. Live like you've never sinned and pray like you're still lost. You see, the life in Christ is one of no condemnation. Our shame over the sin that we've committed was washed away in the rivers of blood that flowed from the cross. So why are we still letting it be in charge? It's, it's like we see the chains broken in the name of Jesus. We celebrate that once a week and then we pick the chains back up and put them on us because it's like we have to carry them still. We need to stop letting these things happen. We need to stop acting like a sacrifice wasn't enough. We should look like people who have escaped eternity in hell because we are those people. Shouldn't it show? Shouldn't that be something that just radiates from us? Shouldn't it be something that when someone bumps into you, they get a glimpse of heaven? That's one of the things our students brought home from Lead the Cause. They, they want people to see Jesus when they bump into them. Because they are people who've been saved from eternity in hell. And that should show. This pray like you're still lost. No matter how long We've been saved. We never stop needing the saving power of Jesus' death and resurrection. Now, I am in no way saying that you can lose your salvation and so you constantly need to keep coming back to this. Scripture, to me, is absolutely clear on that. That once you've put your faith in Christ, you are sealed and you are his. There is nothing strong enough to take you out of the Father's hand. Nothing at all. But that does not mean you should stop recognizing your daily need for his grace. I want you to imagine this. If when you woke up in the morning, every morning, the first thought you had was this, that my sins from yesterday did nothing to damage, hurt, or weaken his forgiveness and mercy for today. Can you imagine what your day would be like if that was your first thought every morning? Man, we would desperately pursue God in prayer. We would desperately seek him in his word. We would come after God because we know he's coming after us. We would long for that connection. And I think the church would look so different because we would know the God who knows our deepest, darkest sin and still loves us unconditionally. See, that's the beautiful thing about God is he didn't look at you and say, wow, look at the potential you have. He looked at you and said, wow, look at how far gone you are. There's no hope in yourself for you and so I'm gonna do whatever it takes. He sees us at our worst and says, I want them. It's amazing. It's an incredible thing. We've got to stop letting pride hold us back from being desperate for God. But pride is a really tricky sin. 
Because it does exactly to us what it did to the Pharisee in Jesus' parable. It, it convinces us of our right standing with God based upon our works instead of the works of Christ on our behalf. It distracts us from our focus of needing or even wanting God and causes us to focus on other rewards and accolades that come from Christian living. Now, John Piper asked a really great question that helps us to kind of determine and diagnose whether or not we have lost our desperation for Christ. I'm going to read this question to you, and I want you to listen closely. Here's what it says. If you could have heaven with no sickness, with all the friends you ever had on earth, and all the food you ever liked, and all the leisure activities you ever enjoyed, and all the natural beauties you ever saw, all the physical pleasures you ever tasted, and no human conflict or any natural disasters, could you be satisfied with heaven if Christ were not there? See, this is a question we need to ask ourselves. If I could have all of the amazing, incredible promises of heaven without Christ being there, would I be satisfied? You see, a few months ago when I heard this for the first time, it hit me hard because I realized that there's a lot of my life, my faith, that I've spent chasing after the rewards and not the Savior. Chasing after these things that I want and not after the one who's chased after me. And we've got to start realizing that when we lose our desperation for him and we start focusing on just the things that we can gain, the church suffers greatly for it. We need to ask ourselves this question. Are we desperate for God? Some of you are sitting in here and you are desperate for God in a whole other way. Because you're sitting here and you've heard me talking about this through the service and you're realizing that you have never put your faith in Jesus Christ to be your savior. You've never trusted in him as the one and only way for you to be saved. And I want to tell you something incredible today. God made you with a purpose and that purpose is to be with him. But here's the problem. Our sins have separated us from God. Now, sin is an old archery term that here's what they would do. There was a guy who would stand by the target And the archers would aim and they'd shoot. And if they missed the bullseye, he would yell out, sin. I don't know how many times he got to yell it out before, you know, maybe they missed the target on purpose. Um, But here's the thing. He would yell out sin because they missed the mark. That's what sin means. We always think of sin as just bad things I do. No, sin is there was a mark set, a perfection set before you that you were supposed to hit. And all of us have fallen short. All of us have missed the mark. We've sinned. We missed the mark, and missing the mark has separated us from God. So we try to do good things. We say, okay, I'll be a good person. I'll act right. I'll show up at church. I'll pray. I'll do whatever I need to, God. And here's the problem. It's the wrong currency. We're trying to pay for our sins with a currency that's not accepted by God. Because God says there has to be the shedding of blood for the forgiveness of sin. You see, we owe God his breath back. He breathes the breath of life into man, and we have to give it back to him. And so God sent his son, Jesus, who came as a man, and he lived perfectly, and he died on a cross, and he breathed out his last and gave that breath of life back to God. And as he breathed out his last, he said, it's paid in full, it is finished. Your debt paid for by Jesus. Then three days later, God the Father raises him from the dead, declaring that payment accepted on your behalf. And anyone who puts their faith in him and him alone 
has eternal life that starts the moment they put their faith in him and lasts for eternity. It doesn't wait till you die. It starts now because he cares about what you're going through now and wants to walk with you through it as he walks you to the eternity with him. And so if you're sitting here today and you have not put your faith in Jesus, I want to invite you to do something with me. I want to invite you to do that today. And so I'm going to make this kind of youth group-like for a moment. We're going to do something that we don't normally do here. I'm going to ask that everybody in the room would just bow their heads and close their eyes. I'm going to tell you what I tell the kids. Don't be poking people next to you. Don't mess with them. I know I have some elders in here, John Tremble, poking people. But here's the thing. If you're sitting here right now and you're going, you know what? I have not put my faith in Jesus, but I am ready to. I want to put my faith in him right now then I want you to pray this with me. This isn't any magic prayer. There's nothing specific about these words. All this is, is it's an opportunity to put into words what is going on in your heart right now. The faith that you are stepping into. And so if you are ready to put your faith in Christ, I want you to pray this with me. Say, God, I know that I have sinned. I missed the mark that you set up for me. And God, I know that I'm separated from you because of it. But God, I also know that you created me to be with you. And you love me so much that you have made a way for me to be brought back to you through Jesus, your son, who you sent to pay the price that I owed. And God, my sins were paid for by Jesus' sacrifice on my behalf. And God, I trust you that when you raised him from the dead and gave him the authority and power to give me new life, that God, that was you accepting that payment on my behalf. And I know that today, through faith in Jesus and him alone, I can be brought to new life for eternity. And God, I'm putting the full weight of what it takes to save me in Jesus' hands, on his sacrifice. With everybody's heads bowed and your eyes closed, if you prayed with me today to put your faith in Jesus for the first time, I want you to just quickly look up at me. Church, I want you to know something. Throughout this weekend, we've seen many people put their faith in Christ sitting in this room. And I have a challenge for you. Those of you that have known Jesus for a while, those of you that have been following Jesus for a while, here is something I'm going to ask of you. Are you willing to come alongside them and show them what it is to desperately chase after God? Are you willing to put aside the pride And to start discipling someone. We're not just here to make converts. We're called to make disciples. And that means allowing them into our lives and letting them walk with us and see what it looks like to follow Christ. Be the Paul to their Timothy. Show them what it is. Say, I'm going to follow him. You follow me. I'll show you how to do this. And then I'll send you to do the same. Church, are you willing to come alongside those that have just come to Christ to help strengthen and build them up, to walk them through this? To show them what it is to be desperate for God. We're going to close today with communion. And I want to I pray for you before we do. God, we thank you 
for the opportunity that we have to celebrate what you have done for us, to celebrate along with heaven as there are people who have put their faith in Christ today and there is a celebration going on. But God, also as we come, help us to remember. Help us to remember what it is that you have done for us, God, that you in a desperate act of sacrifice gave up your son to pay for us. You have desperately chased after us. Help us, God, as we remember that sacrifice to remember what it is to desperately chase after you. God, we praise you for the blood poured out and the body broken. And ask, God, as we take communion today that you would be glorified in our hearts. God, that you would draw us into desperation again. It's in Jesus' name we pray, amen.